it's important to show JLR is really delivering strongly, both financially and operationally. We're setting records. Finding it tough to believe? After all, that's JLR CFO's management speak after the latest quarterly results earlier this November. But let me try to break it down and drive home the point. In the same second quarter of this fiscal, Jaguar Land Rover accounted for two-thirds of Tata Motors' consolidated revenues and profits. Now, top line or revenues were never an issue with the company, but profitability was. Remember the £3.6 billion loss of 2019? With JLR turning the corner and now flat out in full throttle, are you surprised? The stock market pundits who were outright dismissive in the past are now cheering. The markets have definitely acknowledged the turnaround. Now, how much of the turnaround is sustainable? Analysts differ widely on that. And therefore, Mm -hmm. the valuation that is attributed to JLR is varies between six billion pounds to ten billion pounds. Management official doesn't talk about what they attribute as the valuation for that. But one thing is quite clear is that they would like to think about this company more in the lines of Porsche eventually rather than a BMW or a Mercedes. That's Rajiv Ghosh, my colleague from ET Prime, who has been an auto industry junkie for as long as I know him. And I've written extensively on JLR. But to go deeper on what is making it all work, I also turned to a Jaguar Land Rover and Tata Motors veteran from the UK, Dr. Charles Tennant, who joins us from Warwickshire. Yes, uh, Tata years uh, from 1999 through to about 2009, working uh-huh. at Tata Motors in India. Set uh-huh. up the European Technical Centre at White University in 2005. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was working uh, at Jaguar Land Rover when they were owned by Ford on some mm-hmm. research projects that we were running with them. So I, I got quite unique, really. I got the Tata Motors angle. I've mm-hmm. got the Jaguar Land Rover angle as it was, and indeed the WMG White University. And of course, Tata Motors have their tech centre at White University. With these two experts, Rajiv and Charles, over the next half hour or a bit more, I will try to figure out what or who is steering Jaguar Land Rover into this mega aspirational money spinner for the House of Tatars. As electric and batteries take the front seat in JLR's future portfolio, will green make the balance sheet red once again? The management is confident it won't, but we will hear it from our guests. From the Economic Times, I'm your host, Arijit Barman, and you're listening to Revving Up JLR only on The Morning Brief. It's Thursday, the 23rd of November. But before we talk about the present, it's important to briefly rewind to understand the past. 
The deal is finally done. Tata Motors has paid more than a billion pounds to take over Land Rover and Jaguar from Ford. Looks like Ratan Tata's big tough task of acquiring JLR is all done. $2.3 billion deal, less than half the price that struggling Ford paid for the two luxury brands, had been in the works for months. Tata has managed to walk away with its pound of flesh, getting perpetual royalty-free licenses for IPR, plants and design centers of the two brands. It also inherits the distribution and service network for the two, and Ford is committed to supplying engines, components and stampings for JLR production. Ratan Tata believed in two things very clearly. One was that the Tata group has to be go global and they have to acquire things which are at the cutting edge of technologies, more tech, newer technologies. So mm. therefore, Western markets rather than emerging markets was the right fit. And mm. these two brands were up for sale as well. At that moment, it did fit a narrative and a strategy. But right after writing the $2 billion check came the global financial crisis of 2008. And everyone thought Ratan Tata just crashed and burned Tata Motors for life. Betting on these two world-renowned automaking marquees. Jaguar was losing money then, but Range Rover was profitable. But they came saddled with debt, making sure the balance sheet starts bleeding sooner than how the script was supposed to play out. In fact, the debt was, you know, 22,000 crores of debt. At that point of time in 2008, when the financial market was in meltdown, there was a real scare that, you know, Tata Motors as a whole will go to, into bankruptcy. And probably it would have if it were not backed by the Tata Group. It was, it was a life and death. But now, 15 years on, Tatas are clearly on the driver's seat, as I mentioned right in the beginning. And what stands out is the free cash flow the company is throwing up. This yeah. was the weakest link for JLR. Even at the height right. of its profitability, it was barely generating 18 million pounds of free cash flows. And that was like 2015. This was a heyday of hugely profitable China venture and everything. So even mm -hmm. then, and now today we are talking of almost 2 billion pounds, which is twice that. So this is the, clearly the outstanding feature of the financial turnaround. Not the deleveraging? Well, the, once you generate the free cash flows, automatically the mm -hmm. debt will decline. And, you know, there were 3 billion pounds of net debt. 2 billion free cash flow means 1 billion net debt. And even if they generate a billion pounds of free cash flow next year, they will be net debt free. But there has been a lot that has been going on behind the scenes. Strategies streamlined and a pitch for profits. Let's get Charles to explain how JLR managed to shift gears. Well, since 2019, when they made the huge loss, the big write-down, mm -hmm. $3.6 if you go 10 years before that, to when Tata took over JLR, for the first few years from 2008, it was going okay. Money was being made, cash flows were good. They then took what I called the dash for growth strategy. And they were trying to get to like a million cars per year. They expanded the product range significantly from seven vehicles to 14. 
mm-hmm. put extra factories in place, the engine factory near Wolverhampton in the UK, uh, the Chinese factory, uh, Slovakia for the Defender wasn't on board mm-hmm. yet at that point. But they're expanding the manufacturing footprint and going for this volume. Uh, the volume peaked out at about 2017 at 600,000 vehicles, and it never went further from that. Jaguar volumes were doing well at that mm-hmm. point. Land Rover was doing well, but it never got to the peak. And I think then the structure of the company was around that volume. So it, all of the, the headcount, the factories, the overheads were all geared around 1 million units, but it never got to 1 million. So then we had the huge write-off in 2019 when mm-hmm. quite rightly Tata Group said, look, these investments we've made in the Jaguar vehicles, the engine factories, etc., they're not going to deliver what we thought they were going to deliver. So mm-hmm. then, of course, there was the, they called it Project Charge and Project Accelerate. There was massive job losses, 5,000 people in 2019-20, uh, mm-hmm. big cutbacks on material costs. Cutting back those costs was very successfully done. That helped, but then COVID struck. And along with it came the microchip shortage. Everyone was struggling and JLR were disproportionately struggling against mm. their competitors because they didn't have the uh, the leverage with the supply chain to get the mm. components that they needed. But what they did, like a lot of the other manufacturers, they pushed in that volume-constrained period because of the shortage, they pushed very heavily the higher-margin, high-end vehicles. Volumes were dropping. They were pushing Range Rover, Range Rover Sport and Defender Right. As, as the main vehicles they're producing. These are high-margin vehicles, obviously. Yeah. And I think that started to see the way forward. And then as they were in this constrained period, they also were setting about this new strategy called Reimagine. So, Tata to top line, bring on the bottom line by focusing on profitability. Clearly, if you're positioning yourself as luxury, then you can't invest time, effort and money on volumes. Well, that's down 36% from fiscal 2018. Honestly, when you're a company like Jaguar Land Rover and you're chasing volume, it starts to get difficult to produce the right level of quality that luxury customers demand. I was always worried when they're bringing out these uh, smaller vehicles to build mm. build volume because I said, in Jaguar Land Rover's territory, small vehicles mean small profits. Mm. It's the bigger luxury high-end vehicles that are making the margins. But what they did, I mean, if you look at the numbers, they're amazing that they've halved the break-even point from 600,000 vehicles down to around 300,000. They're doing 90,000 vehicles a quarter, so they're more than easily going to meet that break-even point in terms of the vehicle volumes. Mm. But also, the average transaction price for a vehicle has gone from something around 40 to 43,000 pounds to 72,000 pounds. So they've halved the break-even point and doubled the selling price. Basically, the JLR management had reimagined how to do business. No prizes for guessing, they call their new strategy Project Reimagine. Jaguar volumes were reducing and reducing and reducing, almost in a death spiral. So they decided to go battery electric only with Jaguar from 2025 uh, mm-hmm. onwards. Yeah. Uh, then they 
also part of the, the reimagine was so modern luxury by design, but they actually looked at their platform strategies. They're using too many vehicle platforms. That's an increase on cost base. So actually consolidating from around six or seven vehicle platforms down to about three was a key part of reimagine, which is what they're working to now. Today, just three vehicles account mm-hmm. for 64% of their sales and 77% mm-hmm. of their order book. Basically, this company is probably all the profitability is attributed to just three vehicle, three models. So they have realized that when you are selling at the ultra luxury end, you need mm-hmm. to have uh, more focus. And that is the choice that they have made. And it is a structural choice because they have already said that uh, they will reduce 20% of their production capacity from 2024 to 2026. So out went the low-profit Jaguar sedans and hello, premium Range Rovers. Jaguar today is like, uh, I I would guess, less than 10% of their revenues. And they would completely exit all the Jaguars that they sell today. And we will have bring three brand new sports cars instead. And that will be in 2025. So the Jaguar portfolio will be a very different portfolio than we see today. Sedan's had a hard time over the past five years. Everyone's going for SUVs and crossovers. Mm. I mean, uh, Tesla, of course, uh, do a lot of sedans, but that's a different company strategy. But yes, I think... uh, with Range Rover, if you look at the new version of Range Rover, the, the fifth generation, mm. they increased the price point significantly. The Range mm. Rover Sport went from 60,000 base to 80,000 base in GB pounds. And the Vogue, the full fat Range, or we often call it, that went mm. from 80,000 to 100,000 plus. And it didn't affect their sales one mm. bit. They still took mm. the orders. In fact, They've got an order backlog now of around 160, 170,000 vehicles. And mm-hmm. three quarters of that, of that backlog is for the high-end Range Rovers and the high-end Defenders, all profitable mm-hmm. vehicles. So it's quite quite staggering, really, how they've got that huge backlog, which shows just how desirable those vehicles are in the global marketplace. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. pricing's gone up. And this is part of what I said earlier about, about do- almost doubling the average transaction sale price. So the Defender is now priced higher than the Velar and is massively more profitable than Evoque. One of the most popular vehicles was the Evoque, which was around 40,000 pound vehicle, which is roughly 40 lakh for India's import duties. And they are not the focus point. They are kind of, uh, the sales have fallen by 80% or 70% like that. The Mm. kind of vehicle that they're selling today is a Defender between 60 to 80,000 pounds, roughly 70, 70,000 pounds. So almost a doubling of the price of the Evo. And the second most important thing is that the range over the vehicle, which is like really, which doesn't sell anything less than 1.1 lakh pounds. And more interestingly, yeah. And more interesting, they are selling a very sizable number of the customized Range Rovers, which starts at one lakh seventy thousand pounds, completely different. And you know, when you are selling at that kind of price point, you are probably going to make ten times as much profits as one Evoque. So that kind of a difference, one car is ten equal to ten cars. Defender is a remarkable story 
in how to redesign an icon, build it in a different country from where it's traditionally built, mm. and actually take it into the marketplace. And the sales growth in the first two years has been fantastic. And it's all high-end vehicles again. When they first came out with the Defender, you know, people saying, oh, well, you know, farmers won't buy them, utility companies won't buy them. But JLR is not going for that market segment anymore. There's, there's plenty of other companies who can provide pickup trucks and so on and so forth for those type of utility markets. So JLR saying, like with Range Rover itself, which started five decades ago as more of a utility-type mm. large SUV, it's all mm. gone totally luxury. And the Defender as well, it will do exactly, if not more, than what the original Defender did anyway. I mean, I drove one at Gaydon earlier this year, and the off-road capability of that vehicle was absolutely staggering, what it can mm. do, what it can achieve. The big thing, of course, is that on-road behaviour is far superior to the old Defender with the modern chassis, the modern suspension, the modern electronic systems. The other turnaround catalyst? Seek electrifying growth. Literally, go electric as a key differentiating strategy. One of the most interesting aspects is that Tata Group as a whole is making a huge bet on electric as a catalyst for their company. They are likely to invest around $10 billion in their battery business itself, which is a new business. Mm. So battery is going to be central in their roadmap. And yep. in India itself, we have seen that the brand value of Tata passenger vehicles has got a huge uplift because of the Nexon. Because this is a lot of experience, right? And an electric car is a lot more fun to drive car. Everyone True. now realizes that. So electric and luxury will be, and performance, they are so much in saying that it has to be a big part. And that's already reflected in the kind of investment that JLR is making on electric. So we have seen that, you know, investments, which is we are looking at 2.5 billion pound kind of investment. They are, they are already at 3 billion pounds and they will take it up to 3.5 billion pounds, which means that they have actually increased the outlay on electrification. So they are True. building the two electric platforms and six electric cars going to be launched in the next, I think within 2026. So far, JLR has actually been behind the curve on electric compared to its global peers. It's now speeding up to play catch up. With the big Range Rover vehicles, they've got this really interesting platform called Modular Longitudinal Architecture. And it's a flexible platform, so they will be able to build down the same line a petrol or diesel engine vehicle off that platform. They'll be able to build a hybrid uh, vehicle off that platform and be able to build the battery electric vehicles off the same platform. Mm. So really, this is, this is very clever because what it allows them to do it allows them to ramp up the volumes accordingly. I mean, electric vehicles at the moment have, have, have had some very good growth periods over the past two to three years. They seem to have plateaued off a bit at the moment. So by using this flexible platform for the high-end vehicles, they will be able to tune their production processes accordingly to the market requirements. That's quite a, a clever move by... Mm -hmm by Jaguar Land Rover to, to do right. that. And then they've got the smaller platform for the Discovery Sport Evoke type vehicles, the EMA, right. Electrical Modular Architecture, which do the same job in that market sector as well. 
At the heart of going electric is a massive 4 billion pound battery gigafactory in the UK. At 40 gigawatts an hour production capacity, it is twice the size of an average battery plant and is expected to supply 40% demand for batteries for UK car makers by 2030. Tata and JLR will be anchor customers sourcing 60 to 70% of their batteries from the unit. To make it simpler, just JLR alone currently makes a quarter of UK-made cars. This is as big as it gets and naturally got even the UK Prime Minister supercharged. This is a fantastic vote of confidence in the UK and the UK economy. It's one of the largest ever investments in the UK auto sector that we've seen. It's getting us ready for the future and the transition to electric vehicles. It's billions of pounds of investment and thousands of jobs. So it's great news. Now look, there are a range of things that go into a company making a decision like this. And one of them is actually really important. It's the quality of our skills, the quality of our people here who are fantastic. You just walk around this part and you see what incredible people we've got. It's about the competitiveness of our tax regime. It's how we approach regulation. And it's about the relationship with the government, making sure that we can support companies like Tata and JLR to make these investments. It's a real game changer. It's a huge factory down in Somerset. Tata are funding it. Tata are going to run it for Jaguar Land Rover. Yeah. So they're going to become a supplier with the new company called Agritus, I believe. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're going to supply for Jaguar Land Rover and also supply uh, other companies out of that factory also. It's a Mm -hmm. game changer because we had the the failed startup that that was uh, British Vault up in Northumbria that ran out of money, basically. Had no customers, Mm -hmm. ran out of money. We've got another plan, which is the Coventry Airport plan, which is uh, to build a gigafactory there. But that's mm. not going... That, that really is in a sort of slow motion state at the moment. And Tata come in and they said, right, we can build it in Spain, we can build it in the UK. The UK government quite correctly have allocated uh, quite a significant sort of uh, amount of money towards the project. 500 million five, pounds. 500 million, yeah, yeah. But it still means Tata are putting in three and a half billion, which is fantastic. And again, yeah. it shows Tata putting their money where their mouth is, is supporting this jewel in the crown, which is Jaguar Land Rover. But Tatas have no experience in battery making. The buzz is they will partner with the pros like a Panasonic or an Envision, who already has a battery factory with Nissan just next door to Tata's upcoming plant in Somerset. I think they've been tight-lipped about this at the moment. They haven't expressed what their plans are, but I would imagine they would work with probably some Chinese companies or in some sort of joint venture, maybe Panasonic or Envision or, you know, there's plenty of battery or gigafactory production going on in Europe already, you know, uh, 12, 12 plus gigafactories going up in Western Europe. So there's plenty of capability in the region already. Let's not forget Tata themselves have, uh, they've got access to the UK Battery Industrialised Centre, Industrialisation Centre near Coventry. That's a research lab. Going electric is the sustainable way. But in a competitive landscape with a spate of launches, discounts, making profits is easier said than done. Most industry observers fear portfolio level margin for its EV model 
will be tough in the initial years of the new EV launches. Currently, Tata Motors' EV business makes a negative 5% EBITDA margin. Not just Tata's, even Mercedes is facing the margin shock. So short-term profitability impact is indeed a challenge and this is where pricing will be the key factor. Even Ford have announced recently they're losing money on every electric vehicle they make. Right. It's not just the high-end people who are, who are struggling. Um, Tesla's reducing prices significantly on the vehicles to, to maintain sales. Um, BYD too. Yeah, that's right. And, and at the moment, you have to say the electric vehicles at the moment are all tend to be high-end, expensive vehicles. There's not really much of a proposition in Europe or the UK at the moment for, for a mass-market electric vehicle. Customers' appetites are not there yet. There's all sorts of problems with range anxiety, the price of the vehicle. A lot of people are very wary about the, the battery life as well. Mm. Um, it's not been answered properly. How long does the battery last? Is it going to survive? eight, nine, ten years. What happens mm. if you have an accident in the vehicle, it damages the battery. So there's a lot of negativity about electric vehicles at the moment. It's mainly mm. price sensitive and range anxiety are the big issues, I think. Of course, Jag Land Rover not going for mass markets anyway. So that's not a problem they have to worry about really. But you're right, at the moment, um, the electric car side of the uh, legacy OEMs is a real difficult problem because they're not making money and there's this customer pushback. That pushback has even forced the UK government to push the ban on sale of new cars with combustion engines to 2035 from the earlier 2030 deadline. But what could still go wrong? What are the potential risks? The biggest challenge I see is that this is a company which has made this conscious choice not to be a Mercedes or a BMW. It is narrowly focused on three models, which is highly profitable and therefore it's making a lot of money and the strong brand equity, which is evident from very low discounts to sell their vehicles. However, to sustain this, they will have more than three models. They will have maybe five or six, uh, at least has to be there, mm. uh, which is mm. to be. And they have to be very focused and very nimble and mm. basically you have to be on the treadmill all the time. Historically speaking, JLR had ups and downs and a lot of downs. So whether they are sustainable is, is actually the really the big question. Mm. And the management will like to believe that they are not just sustainable, they can be a lot more profitable and more sustainable. Because you know, even now, if you look at it, a Porsche has an 18% EBIT margin, where a JLR even now is around 7 8%. So okay. if you are actually going to be a very profitable company, there is a lot of room to grow from here. Mm. So mm. as of now, 8% margin is something what uh, more like uh, what uh, Mercedes and BMW does at much larger mm. scale. Mm. You know, So it, it is neither at the place of Porsche, neither at the place of BMW. My take. So with all the new EV strategy, product and platform re-engineering, this is clearly as much a story of a turnaround as it is of transition. Apart from the Jaguar, which is going to be purely battery electric, as Charles said, on the Land Rover side, the company has cleverly got this flexible architecture on the platforms 
so that they can build more, more gas engine vehicles or less according to the market dynamics. Smart thinking that. Interesting thing though, all the cash flows and profits that are flowing are mainly from Land Rover. That bit Tata's have fully re-geared. Jaguar needs a deeper overhaul. For the moment, the small Jaguar volumes are fine. With Land Rover being so successful with their product range and profitability, Tata's can afford to see a slow ramp up of the Jaguar electric vehicle volume. So if Jaguars are selling slow to start with, I don't think that's going to harm the business as it would have five or six years ago. Unless, of course, there is a black swan event we have no clue about. So that's that for today. This is Arijit Barman from The Economic Times and you are listening to Revving Up JLR only on The Morning Brief. A special thanks to our guests, Dr. Charles Tennant and Rajiv Ghosh for sharing their amazing insights. This episode was brought to you by sound designer Indranil Bhattacharji and producer Vinay Joshi. Executive producers Anupriya Nair, Anirban Chaudhary and yours truly. Thank you for listening. And if you like this episode, do spread the word on social media and amongst friends. New episode of the Morning Brief podcast drops every Tuesday, Thursdays and Friday. Don't miss it. It streams on Amazon Prime Music, GeoSavan, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. And of course, ET's own audio platform, ET Play. Have a great week ahead. Goodbye and good luck. All clips used in this episode belong to their individual owners. Credits mentioned in the description.